goodness, how is it measured? How is it seen? We all go through life in much the same way. We wake, we eat, we embark on our day. And for most of us, our intent is to make a contribution to something, work, home, society, to make the world a better place, to be good. And without even really meaning to, we begin to self-diagnose how we're doing, good and bad, righteous and unrighteous. We have our good days. We give money to someone in need. We pick up a friend who needs a ride, help your kids with their homework, and we end the day feeling accomplished, feeling good. And then there are those bad days when we can't seem to shake the cloud. The world seems set against us and there is a need to push back. Your teenage son dents the car for the second time this month and you lose it. And in your rage, you say things that you can never take back. Your expense reports don't quite add up, so you twist the numbers, just a little. Your husband has been so distant, but your coworker is so understanding. Maybe this is what was always supposed to happen. But those days are few and far between. Those days don't define us. They are the exception, not the rule, right? And from our perspectives, our lives skew toward the good. But we are a poor judge of what is good. Through the eyes of God, our lives look very different. Far from the even distribution of good and bad. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all realize it. There is an ache that will not go away. A voice that lingers. And we know that we are lying to ourselves. Something is desperately wrong. We all react to that realization in different ways. Some seek to even the score and to do whatever good deeds they can to fill the emptiness. They stop at nothing, frantically searching for a way to do good. But the days continue to pass and the ache remains. Why can't I seem to make things right? Why do I still feel ashamed? Why do I still feel guilty? Others fall into self-loathing and dark thoughts and turn to whatever means they can to kill the ache and silence the voice. But when the fog wears off, they lie in the wake of anxiety, knowing this is not the answer. The truth is that no matter how much we fill our lives with self-discipline, religion, morality, accomplishment, self-medication, or distractions, we can never completely get rid of the feeling that we are not acceptable, that we are ruined. Something is desperately wrong. Why is it so hard to get out the door in the morning? Seriously, I, I don't know if it's because I have young children or what, but I feel like there is a law of the universe that says the more important it is for you to be someplace on time, the more stupid things are going to happen on the way to the car. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so a, a little while ago, my family and I, we were late for something, maybe five, ten minutes late, and I was feeling the stress. And it, we were doing a frantic rush around the house in the morning to get everything ready and, and get out the door, and I still hadn't eaten breakfast. So I threw some oatmeal in the microwave and 
kitchen while it was cooking. I tried to get my coat on my five-year-old and, you know, is just trying to, you know, get her going. She's dragging her feet and it's kind of bugging me. And I go in, my oatmeal's done and it's scalding hot. I don't have time to let it cool. So I'm just like, I'm going to scarf this anyway, you know. And, and my two-year-old starts freaking out at that moment. She comes hitting me and, daddy, 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 doing one of these. And I'm like, I can't help you right now. This is burning my mouth. And I'm feeling the stress rise. We finally get out to the car and it's frosted over. And we're like, oh, another five minutes. We're going to have to scrape the car. All right, here we go. Finally, we're all ready to go. Michelle, my wife, realizes there's something we forgot inside. She goes to the door and it's locked. She doesn't have her keys and she looks at me and I don't have my keys. And we have locked ourselves out of our house somehow and I snap. You have got to be kidding me. Why does this stuff happen when we're late? Oh, you know, and I, I don't say any naughty words, but I want to, okay? <laughs> and I go storm into the back door and I know it's gonna be locked because we never use the back door and I just grab the handle and I shove the door and it opens. Oh, thank you, Jesus, it opens. Get inside, I find the keys, we, we come back out and we're, we're on our way. Now, as we're driving and the, the rage starts to go down, the embarrassment starts to rise. Because I have just gotten irrationally angry for things. No one had done anything wrong. Sometimes there's good reason to be angry, but this was not one of them. And I've upset my wife. And I, I've uh, done in front of my kids. I've thrown a tantrum in front of my kids. The ones that I always say, you know, you use a strong voice. Don't scream. Don't whine. Try to solve the problem. And I go and flip out. And guess where we're headed? Church. That's right. <laughs> Uh, fortunately for all of us, it wasn't a day I had to preach, but even so, I come into a room like this and I'm invited to sing songs that say things like, in all I do, I honor you, God. Yeah, that's, that's right. I feel with a lot of integrity singing that line. You ever been there? Maybe, maybe it's not getting angry before church, but maybe there's something else where you, you feel, you come into a place like this and you feel guilty. You feel ashamed. The last thing you want to do is draw near to God because you know you're not worthy. Maybe it's not something that happened recently. Maybe it's something from the past that just hangs over your head. What do we do with our guilt and our shame? What do we do when we want to withdraw and hide from God? How do we handle that? Well, the book of Hebrews gives us a, a lot of help in this area. Uh, we have been looking at the book of Hebrews for the last few weeks, looking at images of Jesus in this book. And the image we're going to look at today is in chapters 9 and 10. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews 9 and 10. Uh, Hebrews is towards the back of your Bible, so it might be easiest to just sort of start at the back cover and flip forward. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, we will put words on the screen as the time comes. The original audience of the book of Hebrews was a group of Jewish Christians, and they had been following Jesus as their Messiah for a while now, but in the course of following Jesus, things didn't quite turn out the way they expected when they started. Uh, they're getting a lot of pressure from the outside world that doesn't respect their new faith, and they're also feeling kind of a, some internal restlessness, and they're wondering if Jesus is all that they thought he would be. Can, they, can he do for them what they really need? And part of the problem is they have guilty consciences. They know that they sin and they feel their guilt and they are looking back fondly at Judaism because in Judaism they knew what to do with guilt. They had a mechanism to deal with that and it was called sacrifice. And they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, can Jesus deal with our guilt and our shame 
as well as sacrifice used to? Or should we go back to that old system? And the author of Hebrews is trying to address this by showing uh, the, the comparison between Jesus and the sacrificial system. Now, for us to understand this, it's a little bit tricky because the, audi- uh, the author assumes that the audience knows how sacrifices work. So for, to get us up to speed, I'm going to take a little while to explain the logic of sacrifice. And I got to tell you up front, this first point that I'm going to share is going to be the longest one. So if you're the, one, the sort of person who like times the points and multiplies it out with your notes there, like don't stress out, okay? Um, the reason it's the longest is because uh, we're really unfamiliar with sacrifice. It's kind of an odd thing for us because we, we don't really do that in our world. Uh, this is the way the author of Hebrews sort of sums up the logic of sacrifice. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 22. It says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This whole animal sacrifice thing for us is very strange. A a number of years ago, I was a table leader for a ministry called Alpha. Uh, Alpha is a program for people who are exploring the Christian faith. It's kind of a low-pressure environment where people can come in and they can uh, hear what the Bible teaches and they can ask questions and they don't have to worry about being judged or feeling stupid for not knowing something. It's just an easy place to sort of get some questions answered. We actually have Alpha here at Christ Community Church, and we're going to be starting up another uh, round of that in January. If you're in the place where you're exploring or a friend of yours is exploring, that might be a great thing to check out this upcoming year. But I was a a table leader for uh, the ministry, and uh, what had happened one night was we saw a presentation of why Jesus had to die. And the presenter was explaining all of these different images and metaphors that the Bible used to explain the death of Jesus. And at one point he said, Jesus' death was like a sacrifice in the temple. And when we got in our group afterwards to discuss it, uh, one of the guys in the group was like, you know, I I was following along for a long time. I felt like that was a great presentation until he got to that sacrifice part. Because seriously, what does a dead animal have to do with my relationship with God? And what kind of God would ask for that? What kind of bloodthirsty, primitive God are you guys worshiping? You ever wonder about sacrifice? Uh, even, even I do. I, my wife and I, we, uh, each night we read through the Bible. So we you know, go a, a couple chapters at a time and we just sort of read through books of the Bible. And right now we are in the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is the place where read through the Bible programs go to die, okay? Uh, it's the book that explains the sacrificial system. And, and I gotta be honest, it's, it's hard to feel motivated some nights uh, when you're gonna read this stuff because I think, you know what? I, I've never offered a sacrifice. I, I never will offer a sacrifice. Uh, and even if I wanted to, it's not like I, there's like a temple down the street and I could just bring my heifer over there and just like atone for my sins. I'm not, like, it, it's just not, it doesn't seem relevant sometimes. Part of the problem is the whole blood thing. You ever get a little squeamish thinking about this? You know, there's kind of an ick factor involved. Uh, there's, there's draining blood and smearing blood and sprinkling blood, and you're just like, what is the deal with the blood? Uh, part of the problem with that is that we live in a, a post-industrial society, which means we are not farmers, 
Okay? And so that means that it, unlike past eras, uh, when we want to eat meat, we don't actually have to physically go out and kill the animal in order to have meat on our table. Uh, in past eras and in other cultures, if you had meat, someone you knew or you had to go slaughter the animal. And so you saw the blood. We're just not used to that. We think meat comes in you know, individual serving sizes, neatly wrapped in styrofoam and plastic, and that's how it is. Um, curiously, we are responsible, m- most of us, for more animal deaths than the typical person in Bible times. Uh, We just don't see it. Uh, They didn't eat meat every day, uh, but we often do. Uh, So some of the weirdness of sacrifice just comes from the fact that we're not used to, to killing animals. But even so, it's hard to understand why would God ask for that? So here's, I wanna give you just one word that will help explain the sacrificial system, kind of make some sense out of it. Dandelions. I'll explain. I have a friend who is a third grade teacher and uh, every day she would send her kids out for recess at lunchtime. And she would stay in her classroom and she would get ready for the second half of the day and eat her lunch. And every day her kids would come back into her room and they, on the warm days, and they would have a handful of dandelions and they would say, Mrs. T, I got you some flowers. She would take the dandelions, they were already wilting, you know, and she'd put them in a, a little cup of water on the front of her desk. And she'd leave them there all day, proudly displaying the gifts of her children. And then at the end of the day, uh, when the kids were gone, she would throw the dandelions out uh, because they were getting gross and she knew that her kids would bring her more tomorrow. Why did she do that? Did she need the dandelions? No. Was there anything inherently valuable about the dandelions themselves? No. Did she want the dandelions? Kind of. What she wanted was a relationship with her students. Uh, She wanted her students to know that she loved them and that that they could interact with her. Uh, The the problem was they weren't peers. Uh, There was a big gap between them. She was an adult, they're kids, Uh, she's in charge, they've got to do what she says. Uh, She has more knowledge and ability than they do. And frankly, they need her more than she needs them. And so there's a big gap there. This is what God is facing with the sacrificial system. He has an even bigger gap between uh, himself and those he wants to have a relationship with. How do finite people have a relationship with an infinite God? How do sinful people come into connection with a holy God? You see, the whole premise of the, the old covenant, the deal that God made with Israel, was that God was gonna live with them. He, he was going to move in next door, literally. Uh, Back when Israel was wandering around in the desert and everybody was living in a tent, God said, why don't you build me a tent? I want to live in a tent with you. And that tent we call the tabernacle. Uh, And then when they finally settled in the promised land and everybody had a permanent home and uh, the tabernacle became a physical building, the temple. And that's the place where God lived. Which means if you lived in Jerusalem, God literally lived down the street from you. But the problem is God is not the kind of neighbor that you can just sort of, you know, chat with over the fence as you're cooking your brats and like talk about the weather and sports and all that. God is your maker. He is infinite in power and knowledge. He is your king. When he speaks, you obey. And God is blisteringly holy. Nothing sinful can survive his presence. Later on in the book of Hebrews, God is described as a consuming fire. How can you be friends with a forest fire? God may be good, but he is not safe, and you are certainly not his peer. 
So if God wants a relationship with us, what can he do to make that happen? Dandelions. So when God moves in with Israel, what he does is he takes something from their world, something that's accessible to them, and he adapts it so that they can communicate with him. You see, sacrifices were not some brand new innovation for Israel. Every ancient culture had sacrifice. It was how every culture interacted with their gods. It was a symbolic language that everybody knew. And so Israel's sacrificial system, in some ways, is very similar to what other cultures had. But in a lot of other ways, it is dramatically different. Because what God did is he took what the ancient cultures were doing and he reworked it so that it communicated what he wanted and set up the relationship that he wanted with his people. Here's how the, relation, uh, the, the cultures around Israel understood sacrifice. Uh, I'm going to oversimplify it a bit, but it's basically how it worked, was that they saw their gods as larger-than-life human beings who, who were just as selfish, just as needy as you and I are. And as it turns out, the gods are lazy. They've got a lot of power, but they don't want to do a lot of work. And so they create human beings to be their slaves. And, and as long as their slaves keep them happy, things go well, but if their slaves don't, then they throw a tantrum. They throw a hissy fit. And when that happens, it means your crops are going to die or your army's going to get whooped or your favorite TV show is going to get canceled on a cliffhanger or something horrible is going to happen. The problem was the gods really weren't clear with people what was making them upset. And so ancient people basically had to guess what would get their gods to settle down. It was sort of like dealing with a fussy baby. Uh, you know, why, why is she crying? I, I, I don't know, just stick a bottle in her face, see if that works. Or is she stinky? You know, oh, try that thing where you made her laugh yesterday. Let's do that again. It's just sort of a guess and check thing with their gods. That's what the sacrifices were for. The gods seem grumpy, maybe they're hungry, so why don't you feed them? But here's the huge difference with Israel's God. He doesn't need anything. He owns everything. If he were hungry, which he never is, he could just take whatever animal he wanted anyway. He doesn't need people to feed him. In fact, people need him to feed them. So why the sacrifices? Dandelions. He takes something that was accessible and doable for them and creates a way for them to communicate. So what do sacrifices communicate in God's system? What can you say with the language of sacrifice? Well, not all sacrifices say the same things. There are actually lots of different kinds of sacrifices in the Bible. Uh, some of them say things like, thank you. Some of them say, I need you. Some of them say, I'm devoted to you. Lots of different things. But one of the most important things you can say with a sacrifice is, I'm sorry. Well, how does killing an animal actually communicate, I'm sorry? Three different ways, three different ways. Uh, first is this, it communicates, I take responsibility. Killing the animal says, I take responsibility for my actions. Uh, what happened is my fault. I am the one who needs to make things right. It, you can think of a sacrifice as a very vivid way of saying, uh, almost literal way of saying, there's blood on my hands. I'm the guilty party. The second thing that a sacrifice communicates is the consequences are severe. The consequences of my actions are severe and I need to take responsibility. There's a high price to pay for this. And that price at one level was very literal. Uh, giving up an animal was giving up something valuable. You and I, we tend to think of animals as pets. Uh, but in that day, uh, animals were money. Uh, livestock is capital. And so if you sacrifice an animal, it means you can't use it to feed your family. You can't use it to breed more animals. You can't use it to sell on the marketplace. Uh, it's, a, it's a cash loss for this. 
And so the sacrifice was a real loss for the person. But it wasn't just a literal cost, it was also a symbolic cost. Because the death of the animal showed what sin deserves. Most of us, we don't think about our sin as that big of a deal. You know, we, we know we do things we shouldn't do, but like the consequences aren't that severe, right? But according to the Bible, that's not the reality of our sin. You know what we're doing when we sin? We are cooperating with the forces of evil and death in the world. And in a sense, we're unleashing each time we sin a little bit more of the power of death into the world around us. So when, when I gossip behind people's backs, what I'm doing is I'm killing some of the life of the community, killing some of the trust. If I lust after someone that I'm not married to, then I suck a little bit of the life out of my marriage. When I greedily consume more than I need, then I, I feed a system that, that tramples on the poor and destroys the planet. Even when my sin seems benign, it is a slow, steady drip of the poison that is killing the world. And more than that, at a spiritual level, my sin cuts me off from God. And, and God is the source of life. And that means that I deserve a, a physical death, a spiritual death, an eternal death. And so when a person brought a, an animal to be sacrificed, what they did is they would put their hand on the animal and, and basically say, this is me. What's about to happen to this animal is what should happen to me. The death they are dying, they are dying in my place because this is the consequence for my sin. The consequences are severe. The, the third thing it communicates is, is this. I give myself fully to you. It's not just saying, well, you know what? I did the crime, I'll pay the fine, and I can go off and do whatever I want now. No, the sacrifice is a commitment to say, from here on out, God, I'm going I'm to give my whole self to you. You know, just as I pour out the life of this animal, so, so too I am committed to pouring out my life for you, God, from here on out, to, to make it up to you for what I've done. And, and so the system that God set up was to enable his people to communicate this sense of, I'm sorry to him. But the problem is, the system was not perfect. It did not do everything it was set out to do. Now, let's look at Hebrews chapter 10 here and look at where it describes the failure of sacrifice. Verse one says, the law was only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The author of Hebrews is pointing out the fundamental flaw with the sacrificial system. You've gotta keep offering your sacrifice again and again and again. And eventually when you do that after a while, you start to ask the question, is it actually doing anything? You know, you know, if you keep taking your car into the shop and that noise keeps coming back, after a while, you're gonna wonder, is the mechanic doing anything to fix my car? And not only that, verse three says that the sacrifices end up being a reminder of sins. They were designed to be a way for people to commune with God, to connect with him, be close to him. But what's happening is, is it's sort of backfiring. Every time you bring a sacrifice, it's a reminder, you're still a sinner, you still need a sacrifice, you're still a sinner, you're still a sinner, you keep having to do this. And so even as people are offering their sacrifices, their guilt remains, their guilty conscience is not cleansed. And so the author concludes, 
it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let me bring this back around to us, because some of you are thinking, okay, Clayton, that's interesting and all, uh, but I'm not an Israelite, so uh, not a big deal. I'm not that worried about that. What does this have to do with me? Well, it might not seem like your problem, but it actually is, because every single one of us has to figure out what to do with our guilt and our shame. What what do we do with our consciences when something's weighing on them? Uh, And the way I see it, everybody handles our guilt and shame in one of three ways. Uh, Some people deny their guilt. Uh, Some people say, there's no reason for me to feel guilty. You know, if you you follow your heart and you don't get in the way of other people, you shouldn't feel bad about anything you do. You know, just just be true to yourself. And and really, the, the morality that counts is the morality you choose for yourself. You know, you shouldn't have to feel bad for pursuing your desires or wanting certain things. You, you should accept yourself. You should forgive yourself. You shouldn't condemn yourself. You shouldn't condemn other people. No reason to feel guilty here. The other people go to the other extreme. They go to the other side and they try to compensate for their guilt. They, they feel really guilty, so they try to do something good to make up for it. And there's a religious version of this. You know, people, they, they throw themselves into a religious activity. They fast and they pray and they, they give money and they volunteer for charities and they, they show up at every event at the church. And they throw themselves into all these things that might be really good things, but they're doing it because they're trying to make up for something they've done in the past. It's sort of their vis- version of bringing the goat to the temple. They're, they're paying for their sins through their religious activity. But even if you're not religious, you might have a version of this. You know, some people who feel guilty, they throw themselves into their work. You know, they figure, if I can be really successful in this area of my life, it kind of makes up for the fact that I've failed in another area of my life. Or or some people with with their family, they feel like they've done them wrong in some way, and so they become really indulgent with their children. You know, if I can just make them happy, if I can just uh, sort of give them what they want, then, then, you know, I can kind of make up for my failure. Or maybe they do the opposite. They get really strict with their family, really strict with their kids because they think, you know, I've, I've, I've been lax over here, but now I can sort of, you know, deal with it now. Even things like fitness or financial responsibility, all of these good things, they can become ways to try to make up for your sin. You know, I've been a failure over here, so I'm gonna try to be a success over here. You don't have to be an Israelite to be tied to a sacrificial system. And these two options, uh, if we're honest, either denying our guilt or compensating for it, in the end, they don't really work. You, they, just like the sacrificial system, they can't take away our sin. You, you know, you can say, I don't have anything to feel bad about, I don't have anything to feel bad about, but deep down you know, some of the things I do, some of the things I want, they're not the way they're supposed to be. And, and you can try to compensate for it, and you can, you can work your tail off doing good things, but how do you know you've ever done enough? How do you know you've crossed the line and it's okay? And that's why I think most people that I know deal with their guilt in the third way. They try to ignore it. You know, we don't know what to do with it, so we just do our best to pretend it's not there. We avoid thinking about it. We distract ourselves with entertainment. We numb ourselves with addictions. We keep ourselves so busy that we don't have to pay attention to what our hearts are saying. We we try to keep that feeling of self-loathing in the background just enough to stay functional. And some of us are better at that than others. Honestly, I think that's where a lot of us live. And so we may not worry about the failure of the sacrificial system in the Bible, uh, but we do have to worry about the fact that our strategies for managing guilt and shame, well, they fall short too. We need something, something new. And that's exactly what God provides. What he does is he establishes a new agreement, a new covenant, the Bible calls it, between himself and people. Uh, Look at what verse 15 of chapter 10 says. 
says the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifices for sin are no longer necessary. The new covenant fulfills and replaces the old covenant that God made with his people Israel at Mount Sinai. And the big effects of this new covenant are are twofold. The first is this, God is going to begin to transform his people from the inside out. That's what it means by having the law written on your heart. It means that you are going to start to actually want to do the things God wants you to do. It's going to come from the inside. The second big thing, though, is that God is going to forgive our sins once and for all. One final definitive verdict, you are forgiven. No more guilt, no more shame, and because of that, no more need for sacrifices. It's huge. But how can that happen? Well, here's where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of sacrifice. He's the fulfillment of sacrifice. Look at verse 5. It says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said to God, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you are not pleased. But then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Skip down to verse 10. It says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. There's a lot going on in this section, so let me try to make it clear. There are really two big things here that that the passage is trying to say, this is why Jesus can do something the sacrifices can't. The two big important things are this. He has a body, and he did God's will. He has a body and he did God's will. The importance of the body is this. Jesus became fully and truly human. He took on flesh and blood. God stepped into our lives and united himself fully with humanity. It means that he is one of us and it means he can represent us. He can speak on behalf of humanity because he actually is a human. Uh, Think of it this way. Uh, Our sin has unleashed huge damage into the world. We, we have vandalized God's property, we have harmed God's people, we have slandered God's reputation, and now God is suing us for the damages. He's sending us the bill. And at the top of the invoice, it, it, the name that is said, this is who needs to pay, is humanity. The, but the problem is, none of us, not any single one of us, has enough in the bank to actually pay the bill. Uh, even if we pooled all of our resources together, we cannot make up for the damages that we have caused to God's world. But Jesus can. And so when Jesus became a human, what it means is he can actually sign the check for humanity. He can actually be there and pay the price as a human being because he actually is one of us. The other key detail is that Jesus did God's will. He is the first person to ever actually obey God fully. He he had a perfect record. He actually did what pleased God. He, He was the only person in the world who didn't have to offer sacrifices. No black marbles in the jar. And remember, this is what sacrifice was intended to communicate. Three things. I take responsibility, the consequences are severe, and I give myself fully to you. And the amazing thing is, because of his body and because he did God's will, Jesus can actually say those three things. Because he is fully human, he can say, I take responsibility for humanity's sin. Uh, No goat, no bull could ever actually do that. But Jesus can actually say, I really can take responsibility. 
And because he actually did God's will, he can actually say that last one. I give myself fully to you, God. He really did it. When we try to say that to God, we always hold something back. We never really follow through. Even if we intend to be committed to God, we never, we never make it. But Jesus actually did. And he can say the second one too. He says the consequences, the, the death that humanity deserves, well, I can take it. I can pay it. Let me do it. That is why Jesus' death was effective. Look at what verse 11 says. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Look at the contrast here. It, it talks about the priest standing and it talks about Jesus sitting. And the idea here is the priest has to stand all the time because there's always another sacrifice to be done. He can never end his work. He's got to stay on the job because sin keeps going on. But Jesus, he's like, I can go home and I can sit down on my chair and I can enjoy myself because I did it in one shot. The sacrifice was effective and final. I did it. No more work to be done. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. It never needs to be repeated and nothing needs to be added to it. And what this means for you is that it means God is not saying to you, you know what, you better do more. I, there's a, you got to better clean up your act. There's, there's more on the list for you to be done before we can talk about forgiveness. It, it means that church and prayer and all of the, the good stuff we do, this is not some way to earn God's mercy because Jesus has already secured that. By one sacrifice, he has made his people perfect forever. What Jesus did on the cross is enough. But what's the result of Jesus' sacrifice? Look again at verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It says two things about the people who trust in Jesus. Uh, we are made perfect and we are being made holy. No, notice the tension here. Because of what Jesus did right now, here in the present, we are perfect. You hear that and you say, what? Are you, are you talking about me? Like I, <laughs> me, perfect? Uh, if you looked at my life, I am kind of a mess here. What are you talking about perfect? Well, what it's describing here is our status, our standing before God. Uh, officially, when God looks at us, when he sees us, he, what he sees is not guilty. Our, our sin is not hanging over our head. There's no punishment coming for us. We are on the inside, not the outside with God. Uh, Jesus looks at you and he sees you as whole and complete and pure. Your status before God is perfect. And at the same time, you are being made holy. And this isn't talking just about our status, it's talking about our character, our life, the actual things that go on in our heart and our day-to-day -day behavior. We are in process. We're, we're growing, we're, we're being transformed. We are not done yet. But the good news is that one day we will be. Uh, one day God is gonna make us fully and truly holy. We're not doomed to be sinful, broken people forever. We're being changed. And so this really gives us two motivations that are really powerful. Uh, on the one hand, if we are already made perfect in God's eyes, it makes us really confident, you know? 
And if we are in the process of being made holy, it makes us really diligent to keep continuing with that process. Look at how the the author of Hebrews describes this in uh, chapter 10, verse 19. This is the confidence side. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. But when we feel guilty and ashamed, our instinct is to withdraw, to keep our distance, to back away from God. Shame makes us want to hide because we feel like if we come into the presence of God, who we are is going to be exposed and when God sees us, he's going to reject us. We're going to be condemned. And so we draw back. But the verse says, let us draw near to God. And it says we have been invited right into the most holy place. That's an image from the the tabernacle or the temple, the place where God lived. The most holy place was God's room. It was the place where his presence dwelt and no one was allowed to go in there. Actually, only one person was allowed to go in there and only one time of the year. And the only reason he was allowed to go in there was to say sorry to offer a sacrifice for sins and then just back away slowly because we had done things wrong. That's not confidence. But look at what it says. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. No hesitation, no reluctance, no all confidence. We are actually invited to commune with God, to have a real relationship with him, to know him, to be with him. When you feel guilty and ashamed, the very best thing that you can do is draw near to God. Because what will happen is you will experience the fact that he is not gonna reject you. He's not gonna turn you away. He will embrace you and welcome you. And that will be the antidote to your guilt and shame to know that he loves you and he welcomes you in. And it's not because of you. It's because of Jesus. So that's the confidence. But here's the the diligence. Look at verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You you know, a lot of people, when they think about church, uh, they think of it as a way to keep God happy with them. You know, you kind of, you go to church, you show up, you earn some points with God, and it either keeps God happy or it sort of works toward him forgiving your sins. And so when people hear things like, you know, Jesus will forgive your sins once and for all, they wonder, well, do I have to do all that stuff still? The problem here is it's a, it's a great misunderstanding of why followers of Jesus actually gather for things like worship services or, or, or in community groups to study scripture or things like that. We don't get together to get God to forgive us. We get together to remember that God has forgiven us because we forget. We get together to remind each other of what Jesus has done for us. When we feel weighed down by guilt and shame, we want to isolate ourselves from other people. But that's the opposite of what we need. We need to be with people who can tell us the truth, who can tell us that Jesus has already paid it all, that he forgives us, that we are accepted in the times when we doubt it. And more than that, by gathering with followers of Jesus, it spurs us on toward love and good deeds. We remember that God is making us holy. We're in process. 
And one of the main ways he, he works on us is by putting us with other people who are walking that road with us, who can challenge us and encourage us, who, who can partner with us in showing love to the world that God has already shown to us. And so we don't pursue love and good deeds to make God happy with us. It's a response to the fact that God already is happy with us. Uh, church isn't a way to earn forgiveness. It's a way to respond to it. But here's what I know. I know that there are some of you here who have never accepted that forgiveness. You've never actually said, Jesus, what you did on the cross, your death, your resurrection, that was for me. That, that was a sacrifice for my sin. You, you've never surrendered your life and said, you know what, I, I can't deny my guilt. I can't compensate for it. And I, I don't want to ignore it anymore. God, I need you to forgive my guilt. And the really good news is that's all it takes God isn't holding some checklist over your head of what you need to do to be forgiven. He just wants you to accept the offer of the gift he's already provided. And so he's inviting you here and now to let him be your savior, to let him be your king, to surrender your life to him. Will you trust him enough to do that? I'm gonna invite the band back up here. We're gonna sing a final song and take our offering. But before we do that, I'm gonna pray. And I'm actually gonna pray a prayer that if you wanna make that commitment, you wanna accept that gift from Jesus, it's a prayer that you can pray along with me. You know, not out loud, but just echoing what I say in your heart. And if that's you, I wanna encourage you, embrace Jesus as your perfect sacrifice for your sin today and experience his forgiveness. Let's pray. God, I am sorry. I know that I am a sinner I am guilty, and I have no way of making things up to you. God, I, I wanna say thank you. Thank you so much for sending Jesus to die on the cross as the sacrifice in my place. Thank you that Jesus rose again so that I could have life. And God, please forgive me. I need you to remove my guilt and my shame. I need you to make me perfect in your eyes and begin the work of transformation in my heart. God, I give you my life, wholly and completely. You are my savior, you are my king, you are my hope. Now, if you prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time, or maybe as a way of recommitting to Jesus, I just wanna pray for you. God, I, I pray that you would bless people who've just made a decision to follow you, to trust you, to accept your forgiveness. I, I pray that right now that you would give them an incredible sense of your presence, that, that, that you would give them a, a deep experience of their freedom from, from guilt and from shame, that they have been forgiven and they have been cleansed in your eyes. God, I pray that, that they would be surrounded by your people, that they would find community with other people who are following you, people who can encourage them and, and, and help them learn how to live life with you. And God, I pray that you would protect them because we know when, when people make decisions like that, all the forces of evil work to undermine that decision. And so I pray that you would protect them from anything that would harm them or keep them from following through on the decision that they've made right now today. And for all of us, God, I, I wanna pray that you would give us a renewed joy in the fact that you have provided forgiveness of sins and you have given us access to the most holy place where we can be with you. 
It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.